The verses we're going to be focusing on this evening are particularly verses 1 to 3 of chapter 11. And it's worth saying up front, they're pretty dense. Um, Over the coming weeks, we're going to be thinking much more practically as we uh, look through the rest of these verses and look at what faith means in action. Uh, But this evening, we're going to be thinking much more in a dense way about the dense truths right at the start of the chapter, which are going to be unpacked in the subsequent verses. So we're going to have to have our minds switched on this evening, and I back us, we're going to be able to do that. But that's just fair warning at the beginning uh, that we're going to want to be thinking as we come to these verses. But before we do that, um, I've got two apples up here, which are very real and practical. When I hold this apple right up in my face, it demands my attention. It feels huge. And the longer that I hold it there, the more immediate it is in my attention, the more important it will start to feel. The more significant it will start to feel. The more substantial it will start to feel. And I'll start to live my life based on the fact that this apple is right up in my face. I wouldn't recommend it. It'll be a very weird way of living. When something is up in your face, it feels massive. And I think London has a lot in common with this apple. This apple feels much more important than it is when I'm holding it up in my face. And London is constantly holding things up in our faces. This city lives in the grip of the immediate and the right now. And the more London holds things up in my face, the easier it is to think that the most immediate things are also the most important things. The easier it is to think that what's happening right now, right here, is what's most substantial, most significant, and most important, even when I know deep down that that cannot possibly be true. So here's a question for us this evening as we dive into our next series. What would it look like to live in the light of what's actually important instead of what's just immediate? What would it look like to live in the light of the deeply true things instead of the things that this city just constantly thrusts into my attention? Um, As Ruth said, we're starting a new series in Hebrews 11 and the first bit of 12. And what these chapters are all about is doing that. These chapters in Hebrews have one big application that we're going to return to week after week after week. Each week that we're in Hebrews will be a week in which we are called to do the same thing, to live by faith in Jesus, instead of on the basis of what's immediately held up in front of my face. That's the big application of these verses. The whole book of Hebrews is about holding fast to Jesus And there are two big obstacles that the author identifies, two big obstacles to holding fast to Jesus that might cause us to shrink back from him instead of holding fast to him. Number one, temptations, which draw my attention away from him. And number two, persecutions, which thrust themselves up in my face. The whole letter to the Hebrews up to this point in uh, midway through chapter 10 has been taking on temptations, but the author has combated temptations with truth. Not even the glory of the Old Testament should tempt us away from Jesus, because even the rich glory of the Old Testament was actually all about turning our attention to him. And then in chapter 10, we move to the second of those two big, big obstacles, persecution. How can we keep holding fast to Jesus in the face of persecution? And the answer that the author 
of the letter to the Hebrews gives us is faith, which is what the rest of Hebrews and especially chapter 11 is all about, living by faith, specifically how living by faith will stop us shrinking back from Jesus and keep us holding fast to him when opposition and persecution is thrust up in my face. Um, At this point, as we dive in, let me say um, I owe almost everything that I'm saying to two amazing theologians, one called John Owen and one called Thomas Aquinas, and I'd love to talk to you about those afterwards if that's something uh, that you'd be interested in. So what is faith and how does faith keep us holding fast to Jesus? Verse one, look down with me. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. We're going to take each part of that definition in turn. And I want to put the first part of the definition like this. Number one, faith gives substance to what we hope for. Let's unpack that because it's dense. Uh, We're wanting to define faith, but the author of the letter to the Hebrews has defined faith in relation to hope. So we need to begin by defining hope. Then we can define faith, and then we can consider how faith is going to keep us holding fast to Jesus during persecution. Okay, so what is hope? When we see hope, I want us to think goodness, because we hope for things that are good. If I asked you to make a list of hopes, you'd list a whole pile of things uh, that were good, things that you were confident would bring you happiness and joy and delight because they were good and excellent. But specifically, good things that you do not currently have, you could have, but you do not have right now. Hope is a habit that is oriented towards the future. Hope is the habit of the soul that leans towards something as a source of future goodness. To hope is to anchor your soul to a good thing and to just habitually lean towards it. Which means there are two ways that my hope can be strengthened. The more excellent and good something is, the more strongly I will fix my hope to it. And the more certain and the more sure something is, the more strongly I will fix my hope to it. Let me give uh, two trivial examples. I hope that Wales will win the Football World Cup in December. I think that would bring me a huge amount of happiness, but I am not very confident at all that that is going to happen. So I would say I do not have very much hope in that at all. But I am very confident that at some point in the next couple of years, Taylor Swift is going to release some new music. And I am supremely confident that when she does that, I am going to absolutely love it. So my hope in Taylor Swift and her music is massive. And the more she posts Easter eggs and hints and clues about music that's coming, the more my hope is confirmed and strengthened and nurtured and grown. Two very trivial examples, but you get the point. When you hear hope, think future goodness. Because hope is that habit of leaning towards something in the future as a source of what is good. And that means that we Christians are people who are defined by hope. Christians are full of hope because Christians are people who believe that the future holds very, very 
many, many good things. We hope for heaven and earth to be made new and for the dead to be raised. We hope for death to die and the floodgates of God's justice to be flung open. We hope for God to make his dwelling here among us and to wipe away every tear. To hope is to lean towards something as a source of goodness, which means hope at its truest and hope at its fullest is always leaning towards God and God alone as the fountain from which all good things come. Properly speaking, hope means leaning towards God as the fountain from which all true blessing flows. It is a beautiful thing. But as we think about hope, we quite quickly see the problem with hope. Here's the problem with hope. The full reality of the very, very many, many good things that we hope for as Christians lies mostly or entirely beyond what we can see and sense and touch. That's actually what makes Christianity so glorious. The whole glory of Christianity is that it depends on and hopes for things that are so excellent that no eye has ever seen them, so wonderful that no ear has ever heard them, so glorious that no human mind could even conceive of them. But it is also what makes hope so hard There is a fulfillment gap between what we see and what we hope for. And persecution just doubles down on that fulfillment gap. Persecution sees that gap between what we see and what we hope for and just lays into it. What makes persecution and opposition effective is that it just gets up in your face and crowds your senses like an apple that's right up in my vision. It is loud, it is immediate, and it's very close. And because persecution and opposition are loud and immediate and close, in that moment, they can feel far more real, far more substantial, far bigger, far truer, and far more important than any of those unseen things that I hoped for. My hope is beyond what can be touched or held or seen, but opposition floods my senses. My hope transcends reason, but shame drowns everything else out. My hope is beyond imagining, but insults insults breathe right up in my face. So, how can we hold fast to Jesus in the midst of opposition and conflict and persecution and insults and shame that are so very immediate? And the answer of Hebrews is faith, because faith gives substance to those good things that we hope for, even though our senses don't currently see or experience them. Faith is the means by which we can conceive in our minds what we cannot see or feel with our senses. Faith gives substance to hope. Okay, let's uh, keep unpacking that some more. We've defined hope. It's all about goodness. It's time to define faith. 
Uh, When you think hope, think goodness. When you think faith, think truth. Hope is when the soul leans towards something as a source of goodness. Faith is when the soul leans towards something as a source of truth. So just like everyone has some sort of natural hope, everyone has some sort of natural faith. If you were to make a list of hopes, you'd be making a list of good things that people uh, thought were good. If you were to make a list of people's faiths, the list would be things people look to as sources of truth. So near the top, we'd probably put Christianity or Islam or Judaism, uh, maybe along with Hinduism, Buddhism and Sikhism. Uh, But maybe we could actually begin to include some other things that people look to to reveal and establish what is true. Maybe we could put capitalism looking to market forces for what is true. Or maybe we could put empiricism looking to the scientific method for what is most deeply true. Uh, Critical theory looking at power structures for truth. Or individualism looking inside myself for truth. Or perhaps we could go really day to day. Uh, Most of us have a significant degree of faith in our doctors that the diagnoses they give us are correct and factually true. We have uh, faith in the engineers who built all the rooms and the spaces that we inhabit, that their buildings will stand true to their words. Um, And many of us have some degree of faith in weather, weather forecasters, that the weather they predict will at least be vaguely likely. The thing you have faith in is the thing you lean towards to reveal and establish what is most deeply true. And especially the thing you lean towards for all the truth that is beyond your immediate senses and is bigger than you're able to reason out. Which is why everyone has some sort of natural faith. Because everyone believes that there is more truth to be known in this universe than what I have personally seen or personally experienced or personally worked out for myself. Life without faith, well, that would mean living in the narrow prison of what I can touch and see and think right now. And the narrow prison of right now just is not big enough for a human soul. Human beings cannot live entirely in the immediate. All human beings have some sort of hope. All human beings have some sort of faith. And as Christians, we aren't just defined by where we have put our hope. We are most deeply defined by where we have put our faith. Because Christians don't just lean on God as the source of all goodness. We lean on him as the source of all truth. Despite the immediate information we're getting from all our senses, despite what we can see, despite what we can hear, despite what we can touch, true hope is when the soul leans towards God as the source of all goodness. And true faith is when the soul leans towards God as the source of all truth. So do you see how Christian faith and Christian hope are just utterly intertwined? Christians put their faith and their hope in the same thing. We believe that goodness and truth come from the same place. They are not in opposition. Goodness is ultimately true, and truth is ultimately good. The Christian puts faith and hope in the same thing. Verse 11, uh, verse 1 of chapter 11. Now, faith is confidence 
in what we hope for. Why is that? Because faith says that the God I have put my hope in will absolutely prove himself true. Translated another way, faith gives substance to hope. Because faith says God isn't just gloriously good. He is absolutely trustworthy and true. Faith gives substance to hope. So, second part of the definition, how does it do that? Faith gives substance to hope. How? Second part of the definition, by evidencing what we can't see. Sometimes uh, we believe things because they're evident to our senses, but there is more truth in this universe than I can touch, and the truest things in reality aren't things that we can see or hold. Sometimes we believe things because they're evident to our reason, our minds, but there is more truth in this universe than I can figure out or reason my way up to. And the truest things in reality are far beyond anything that we could ever work out for ourselves. So how can we come to know those sorts of things? How can we come to know the invisible, unimaginably good God, the wonder of the way that he works, and all the rich blessings he has stored up to pour out on those who love him? Well, there is another way that we come to believe things, and it's when someone tells us, and we believe that they're telling the truth. That is what it means to know something by faith. It means you believe something is true because you have faith in the person who told it to you, the source that it came from. Sight and sense are wonderful for visible, touchable things, but if you want to know about the things you cannot touch, you need faith. Our senses can't tell us what came before there was uh, nothing to touch or see, and our reason tells us that nothing comes from nothing. But verse 3, by faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what what was visible. Because faith is to the unseen what sight is to the seen. We can't touch or hold or see God. The truth about God is not evident to our senses. We can't reach up and touch him, and our minds could never think their way up to him. But we can still know him. How? Because he tells us about himself. Because he has revealed himself to us in his word, and we receive his word by faith, confident that the place it came from is true. In the two testaments, the two witnesses, the two testaments of scripture, old and new, God has revealed what he's like. And in the human flesh of Jesus Christ, the invisible God has made himself known. And by faith, we lean on what he said in his words as the ultimate source and foundation of truth. That's how we come to know the invisible God and all of his unimaginable goodness. God reveals the truth about himself to us so that we can actually understand him in our minds and he can actually dwell in our hearts even though we cannot perceive him with our senses. And that, 
That is how faith gives substance to what we hope for. Because as God reveals and makes himself evident to us, our hope is strengthened and it's made confident and it's substantiated. And that happens in two ways. Do you remember there are two ways that my hope can be strengthened? The more excellent and good something is, the more strongly I'll fix my hope to it. And the more certain and sure it is, the more strongly I will fix my hope to it. Faith gives substance to our hope because it grows our confidence in both of those things. Our confidence in the certainty of our hope is grown as God evidences himself to us. And our confidence in the goodness of our hope is grown as God evidences himself to us. Let's think about that a little bit before we close. Um, If you've ever heard of something called object permanence before, then you'll know that it's quite a lot of fun to watch children learning about object permanence. Um, Object permanence is is the way in which a child comes to understand that mummy or daddy or teddy still exists even when I can't see them. Um, So this is why peekaboo works and why it's such a lot of fun to play peekaboo with a baby. Babies don't have object permanence yet, so when you cover your face and play peekaboo with a baby, they think you've disappeared. And then you open your face, uh, you open and reveal your face to them, and it's just incredible to them because suddenly a human being has come out of nowhere. Babies don't get object permanence, and it's a lot of fun. But toddlers, they have started to learn object permanence. They've started to understand that just because they can't see mummy, it doesn't mean she stopped existing. And if you watch a toddler, you'll begin to see the way in which they do this. Um, Some of us who've been regularly will know Boaz, who is a little toddler who normally comes along to the 5.30. It's an absolute joy for me. Uh, And one of the things you'll see as you watch Boaz, uh, particularly as he was starting to learn this, is he would run a little way away from his mum, Tasha, and then look back. Ah, Tasha's still there. Mum's still there. Interesting. And she's smiling at me. That's good. And then he'd, he'd look away again and run a bit further. Look back. She is still there. That is good news. And she's still smiling. Incredible. And then he'd run all the way to the other side of the room and look back. I can still see mum. She still exists and she is still smiling. This is good news. Babies and toddlers learn object permanence by testing it, by putting it into practice and repeatedly looking back for assurance. Object permanence is confidence that mum or dad or Teddy will still be there even when I can't see them, and it doesn't come naturally to human beings. It's not something we can muster up in ourselves. It's something we have to be assured about. It's something that grows as we repeatedly put it into practice and repeatedly look back for mum's assuring smile. Object permanence doesn't come naturally to human beings, and neither does faith. Faith is not something we can muster up in ourselves. It would be so easy to read verse 1 as though faith is essentially about how good I am at being confident, instead of how good God is at giving us assurance. But friends, my ability to be confident will not keep me going when opposition is right up in my face. 
Faith doesn't come naturally to human beings. It's not something we can muster up in ourselves. We will only grow in faith when we keep looking back to the assurances of God. The confidence in verse 1 of Hebrews 11 will only come when we learn to be like Boaz, when we learn to repeatedly turn to God's word for assurance, to repeatedly behold God's face in his promises. Faith isn't the sort of confidence you can muster up. It's the sort of confidence you receive by being like Boaz, habitually turning back to God to look at his assuring smile in his word. Our confidence in the certainty of our hope is grown as God evidences himself to us and as we are assured by his word. And secondly, our confidence in the goodness of our hope is grown as God evidences himself to us and we actually taste and experience his goodness. Because when God reveals himself to us, he doesn't just tell us he's there. Like Boaz's mum, Tasha, with Boaz, he's smiling. He shows us what he's like as he shines into our lives. And we don't just come to know about him, we come to know him and to confidently live in the light of his goodness. And again, this is not confidence you can muster up in yourself. It is confidence you receive and grow in. Think of Boaz's confidence in Tasha's kindness. Boaz does not make Tasha kind by looking at her. And you do not make God good by putting your faith in him. You open your eyes to his smile. And then you live in the confidence of the assurance you've just received. Or think about the brightness of the sun on this bright Sunday evening. You do not make the sun bright by seeing it. And you do not make God good by having faith in him. You open your eyes to his brightness and then you live in the light of what you receive. So friends, if your confidence in God's goodness feels weak this evening, can I say you do not need to look at him harder. You may need to look at him more. But the crucial thing is that you're looking at him at all. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that there will be a day when we will see God face to face. For now, we see in a mirror dimly by faith that we do still see him. And we don't just see his face, we see his smile. That is how faith grows our hope. That is how faith gives confidence and substance to what we hope for when we look to his word for assurance and actually taste his goodness. That is the way to live your life in London, not according to the limits of what you can see immediately in front of you, but according to the unimaginable truth revealed to us in Jesus Christ through his word. Faith gives substance to what we hope for by evidencing what we cannot see. And what we cannot see is supremely this, the smiling face of the unimaginably good God. Over the coming weeks, we're going to spend time looking at what living by faith 
looks like. We'll meet Abraham, who made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. We'll meet Moses, who chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. We'll meet Enoch and Sarah, and Abel and Rahab, men and women of whom this world was not worthy. And the message will be the same every single time. However big the opposition, however loud the insults, however much London gets up in your face, live by faith not by sight, because faith gives substance to what we hope for by evidencing what we can't see. And there is no greater hope in heaven and no greater assurance on earth than the sunshine of God's everlasting smile towards his children. Let's pray. Lord God, London feels so important Everything in this city is so close and so immediate and so soon and so near. And when opposition gets up in our face, it's really hard to hold fast to you. Lord God, you are higher than the world can touch, greater than our greatest thoughts and more wonderful uh, than anything we can imagine. You are the wellspring of all goodness, the fountain of all truth. As you reveal yourselves to us, would you cause us to put all of our hope and all of our faith in you and in you alone? And would you assure us with the everlasting sunshine of your smile? If we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.